Compose Melbourne is a new functional programming conference focused on developing the community and bringing type functional programming to a wider audience. It is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 29th and 30th of August 2016. The first day features a single track of presentations, followed by a second day of workshops and an unconference. It is a new sister conference of the New York-based Compose Conference. A lecture conference taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. The two days of conference are on September 1st and 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit elixirconf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be composed of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they all have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erling, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstackfest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Hebert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erlang co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the speaker lineup can be found on their website. And all attendees are entitled to participate in the complimentary tutorials day on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Early bird tickets are now available, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRE10. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-ling.org. PWLConf2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon and further the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. This conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place September 30th and October 1st, 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal, and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees together together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit lambda.world to sign up for early bird tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong, sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. The regular tickets are still available for 100 euros, and the call for proposal is already open and closes Sunday, September 4th. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. And Codemesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit Codemesh.io to submit your talks, register, and to sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available.
Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, Google Play Music Store, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media. I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Paul Bone. Paul, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? G'day, I'm Paul Bone. I contribute to the Mercury programming language, which I guess is the main topic for today. So that was one of the reasons you came across the radar was, and I apologize in advance to you for most likely pronouncing your name wrong, Nils Bloom Oost. Sorry, Nils. But he recommended something about Mercury language on Twitter. And I said, hey, looks interesting. Hadn't even heard of it, but... I could put that on the radar, and then someone from the official Mercury language account and you said, hey, I'd be happy to talk about Mercury on this. So I figured that's the primary thing we can get on, but it's always interesting to know the people we're talking to. So why don't you give a little bit of background about how you got started in software development? For as long as I can remember, I've loved software development. It depends how far back you want to go. I mean, I can go back to the first home computer and watching my uncle drive it like nobody else could and thinking, hey, there's something to this. So that's that's where the curiosity started. We can start from there. (laughs) Well, that's basically it. That's all there is to that anecdote. But no, I started programming when I was about maybe 12 with QBasic and learned C when I was about 14 or 15, I think. Or begun learning. See, I didn't really learn it well until much later. I thought that I knew it then, but I didn't. And have worked in software, did the usual thing that everybody seemed to be doing and going to uni and getting a bachelor's degree and working in industry for a while. And then at one point in industry, I was using SQL and I was like, wow, this is so cool. I just say what I want, not how to do it. And the query planner figures out the best way to do it for me. And my colleague picked up on this and said, this is called declarative programming. And he introduced me to that and I was hooked. So you got hooked on SQL and you got hooked on declarative programming. And then somehow you made that transition to Mercury language. So what was that transition looking like? Because if you were like me, you probably have never heard of Mercury language until we just now mentioned this in you might be on the drive, so you're not actually looking up the website to say, what is this? So do you want to give a rundown of, got fell in love with the declarative programming, but then what? So I thought this was cool that I could just say what I wanted. My friend, who I mentioned, he's the kind with a ponytail, long hair, and uses Lisp. So he knew all about this and told me more about it. And so I began trying to use Lambda expressions within Python. Eventually, I asked my friend, hey, what language should I learn? And he said, well, you can start with SCIP and learn Scheme, but you probably want to be using Haskell. Haskell was declaratively pure, which I noticed pretty clearly. 
and thought, hey, this would be great for parallel. I bet you could do cool things. I wasn't quite sure what the ideas were, but I knew that there was something there. It was basically the other stuff that people had already explored at that point. But a few other things happened and I was looking for my next thing to do career-wise. And so I, I looked around at the local universities and found people who were interested in parallelism and declarative programming and said, hey, I want to work, do this research topic with you. And that was Zoltan and the Mercury Project. And so I was mostly learnt Mercury by working on my honours degree and then later my PhD at uh, Melbourne University. And I want to dig in more to that transition to Lisp and Haskell and then the eventual move back to the academics with Mercury, but we've mentioned it a number of times. So do you want to give a quick elevator pitch of what Mercury is? And we'll go back into digging through your your Lisp and Haskell and then actually dig into Mercury more. But in the meantime, do you want to give that elevator pitch for Mercury for people so we don't just leave them hanging around saying, Okay, yeah, you keep saying this word, but... Yeah, so Mercury is a declaratively pure logic functional language. I guess it's primarily a logic language, the way Prolog is. If A lot of people have learned Prolog, say, through uni. But if you haven't, it's goal-oriented execution rather than function-oriented, the way Haskell and uh, functional languages are. But in the way that functional programming is based upon the Lambda calculus logic programming is based upon the predicate calculus, which has a lot of the same properties and benefits so that you can make it declaratively pure and get those same kind of benefits. Mercury is strongly statically typed. It has a type system very similar to Haskell's. Unlike Haskell, it's uh, eagerly evaluated. Is it a problem that I'm comparing with Haskell? I mean, it's, it's what a lot of people who I speak to tend to be familiar with. Is your audience cool with that? I think we've covered a bunch of different languages here, so I think that will work because while everybody might not be explicitly related to Haskell, they may have enough rough familiarity about what it is, and I'm sure we'll dig into some of those things more as we go down the rabbit hole of how you got into Mercury and what Mercury is and how you've found working with Mercury. So I think that's a good summary. And we'll go back a little bit and talk about your introduction to Lisp and Haskell, and that maybe that'll set up some more background for anybody when we start comparing comparing it a little more. Sure. I actually wrote very little Lisp or Scheme. I mostly watched the video lectures of the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs book, which are great if you want to get into functional programming and find out what it's all about then that's a great resource. Not so much typed functional programming, but still very cool. And the fancy things they do towards the end of that course blew my mind. So you mentioned these courses, and while you weren't doing a lot of it, how did you find, if you mentioned the end of it blew your mind, how did you find the beginning transition? Was this something that you had some of these ideas exposure to and were kind of able to relate to from other experience? Or was the whole thing kind of a complete shock and awe? And what was that revelation like that actually caused you to decide to look in more and even take the jump into Haskell and start looking further down the line? I guess there were always clues that there was something more. I'm going to say there's something more to this as if I'm talking about some grandiose idea of life. But it always 
It was a long time ago, but somebody asked me why when I write in C code or Java code do I always have to write for i equals zero, i like semicolon, i plus plus, or whatever it is, that magic incantation and repeat themselves. And they were getting onto something that maybe we can abstract away details like this. And at the time, I thought, gee, you're an idiot. I mean, just write it and move on with your life and just keep using your C or Java or whatever. But now that I think back upon that, I think that he was getting into what a lot of us have eventually found with functional programming, that we can have more elegant ways of expressing things. So I was looking at some point, I think it was a bit before I mentioned my friend. I'm going to mention my friend's name. It's Trent Buck. He's a cool guy, rather than just saying my anonymous friend. So I picked up Python at one point and found that it was very easy to express things using functions like range, which generate a list of numbers, was a lot more elegant compared to what I had been doing. And part of me wondered, why are these languages in which it's so easy to express things somewhat slow, like Python and Perl and things like that? And I worked out that well, the way that they're expressing things succinctly is through things that we know from functional programming, basically functions being first-class objects, lambda expressions and that kind of thing. So there were these clues, the for loop, the questioning why the for loop is there, succinct ways to express things in Python. So there were these clues for me that there was something more to learn about programming. And it wasn't until my friend shoved it in my face that I was ready to accept it. So, And that's always interesting to hear what clues have led people down when they said, yeah, I finally made the jump. And in retrospect, it seems like I was following down this path anyway. And once I was shown this, it clicked. Some people struggle, but there's like, there seemed to be something there that while I might have struggled at the time, it seems so clear five years on or 10 years on after doing this. Yeah. I was a bit worried for a moment that I wasn't making any sense at all. So I'm, I'm glad this is a familiar story. So you do the SICP lectures, you get your mind blown at the end. What was some of the stuff, if you can recall, because it might have been a while, that blew your mind about what they were covering at the end, and then we can get into making that jump into picking up Haskell? I think it was, it wasn't so far much as near the end. The example that I can recall was there was an expression for a mathematical function, like a quadratic function or something. And then the lecturer demonstrates that he can write another function which takes this function and returns its derivative because the expression is just data. So the idea that um, it's just another way that you can end up writing less code. I don't have to write the expression and then write out by hand its derivative. The system can find it for me. So it seems simple, but when you're repeating yourself less, you're creating less errors. And so you get this insight and you get some of these examples, like you just said, with I can actually deduce the derivative given the code as the expression because the expression and the code are just data in scheme. Mm. And then you go on and go into Haskell. What was the thing that led you to Haskell then from going on to something that was a simple syntax, very minimal dynamic, uh, and what you get with Lisp? to going in something that is still functional, a lot more pure, 
and strongly and statically typed with a whole bunch of these other algebraic data types that eventually evolve in category as you start to dig deeper, as one starts to dig deeper into Haskell. What put mm-hmm. Haskell on your radar from just finishing and working through the SICP lectures? What made you say, I'm going to choose Haskell for the next thing I'm going to pick up and work with? It kind of seemed like the only option, <laughs> which is a really weird thing to say. But I Lisp and Scheme have had the impression of being, and I can't believe I'm saying this, an academic language, because people see this, say this about Mercury, and I would disagree. So I feel bad saying this. But I didn't have the sense that people actually use these things apart from to write textbooks and courses and things. So... I think I looked around and Haskell was there. It was strongly typed, which I've always liked. And yeah, that was it. So I actually wrote in Haskell a fair bit more than I did in Scheme, but mostly only still playing around in my spare time. So I didn't create anything and I mostly just wrote small examples trying to get my head around lazy evaluation. I was introduced to Mercury before I finished learning even the beginning stuff in Haskell. And then you get introduced to Mercury. What introduced you to Mercury? Was that because you started going back and wanting to continue academic programs? Or did you get introduced to Mercury before that and then said, well, now that I see this, maybe it makes sense to actually take this and use this as the basis for some of the stuff that interests me and I can do this in an academic program? It was that I wanted to go back to study more and was looking around at universities near me trying to find who I would study with if I wanted to do research. I mean, one of the big things is who would, given that I had the kind of idea that I wanted to do, I wanted to somehow combine parallel execution and declarative programming. And declarative is functional and logical all added up together. I didn't know that at the time, but I knew that that's the kind of idea. So I looked around knowing that that's the kind of project that I wanted to do and found Sultan, uh, Sultan Shimogi working at Melbourne Uni with an interest in the same things. Even on his website of, hi, I'm looking for students and here's some projects you might like to do, he listed the ideal project for me, which was automatically introducing parallelism to a Mercury program. And so I'm like, well, what's a Mercury thing? And found it from there. So I found that it had the things that I liked from Haskell, that it was pure and strongly typed, and learned more about the remaining things. This is probably a good transition to talk about those things. Yeah, it sounds like we're at the point for you getting your exposure into Mercury a little bit more than just looking at that website and seeing what it is. So you come in, you see this, as you described, Mercury with the elevator pitch. Did that make sense to you at that point, or was that just we've got this language, it's declarative, and we were looking for the opportunity to introduce automatic parallelism and concurrency into it. And hey, that's what I'm interested in doing, but I still don't understand any of the other stuff you just said around this language. Or what was that first getting into Mercury and getting familiar with it? I think I took it as a given that the things that I didn't understand about Mercury at the time made sense. Obviously, somebody used it and it made sense to them. I'd never used a logic language and I didn't use one in undergrad either. I hadn't learned Prolog. So logic programming was completely new to me. My very first program was solving the end queens problem. It's where you've got a chessboard and you have to, like a normal chessboard is a grid of eight by eight squares. 
and you have to place eight pieces and you pretend that they're all queens so that they cannot take any other piece. So my very first program was a non-deterministic search to find a solution, which is Mercury makes very easy, but a lot of other languages would struggle to solve that. You'd struggle to express that problem in those other languages. And for those who aren't familiar with that, and I've only got a touching familiarity with Prologue and talked to a couple people about it, but with that N-Queen problem in Prologue, it would be something where you say, a queen has a diagonal that fits this line offset of a grid, and it has a horizontal and a ver- vertical, and that no other queen could be on that, and there must be eight queens placed or something like that, right? You would essentially set up your constraints as you describe the problem and express that in prologue syntax, and then it would just run and determine it for you. Is that something similar in Mercury, or is there something slightly different in the way that you would think about it from a logic perspective? It's pretty much the same. You do it the same in the program would have the same structure in both languages. And yeah, you say place a queen on this row. Ah, the very first optimization you'd make is, and this just because it's so obvious to me, I'm going to introduce it now and then go back to the problem is that because you know that queens can move vertically and horizontally, then you only know that you can have one queen per, say, row on the chessboard. And so you can iterate over that and just make that iteration rather than a non-deterministic search for that particular dimension of the problem. And that cuts down on the search space. So it's the kind of thing that after you get it working the first time, you go back and, and add this as the student who's learning logic language. A logic language veteran would have probably done this the first time. But now that my mind thinks like that, I thought I'd explain what I'm thinking. Yeah, so you'd say, well, there's a queen in this row, and you'd iterate over each of the rows as you iterate over the queens and place them in one of the other columns. Now that because we're iterating over rows, you just select a column. And if the queen is safe in that position, you can continue to the next one. If the queen is not safe in that position, then you fail and the prologue or mercury or whatever you're using will backtrack to a point at which it made a decision on one of the previous queens in order to place it differently so that you can continue to place queens until you get a solution to the problem. And then I had William Byrne on talking about Minikanran and some other logic programming, and he outlined some of the difference between Minikanran and Prologue, which was doing the shortcuts and making the, I guess, the more impure style of Prologue go away, improving what you can do by not doing some of that stuff? Is that something that Mercury takes advantage of or does not take advantage of in the sense of comparing it to Mercury versus Prologue from what people may have heard about that, where you can give hints and exits, right? I'm afraid I don't know about Mini Canran. In Mercury, rather than Prologue, you start to say things like, "There's if you've got a, a predicate, a predicate sum, the basic building thing of a Mercury program, like a function is in, in a functional language, or a procedure is in a procedural language. So you say on your predicate, this predicate can only have one solution. And if the compiler agrees with you, um, then 
then that provides some limit that the runtime system knows that it won't need to backtrack within that predicate and can execute it more quickly. Okay, that's interesting. I don't know that that was the answer, but I also don't know that I actually asked the question accurately, so that's no fault of your own. (laughs) I was going to say, does this make sense? But that's an interesting topic to explore and dig in, because you also mentioned in your rundown of Mercury earlier on was the predicate calculus compared to the lambda calculus. So if you're talking about these predicate sums and being able to state that they have one or many or some number of answers, can you dig into the predicate calculus a little bit and what that means to be able to declare the fact that there is only one answer and what happens if you get multiple answers back? Or can you give some background on that for anybody who's not familiar with the predicate calculus, at least by name, if not by complete topic? All right. I might uh, backtrack even further, um, if if that's all right. It sounds like that's permissible in Mercury and, and other logic <laughs> I, programming languages, so go at it. Sorry, that was unintentional. Um, so Mercury has a strong mode system, which means that if... Sorry, I'll go back a little further. A predicate is basically a group of things that make sense in a relation. Think of it as as a relation, say, in a relational database, because it's very, very similar. If I say Paul's father is Keith, then this is a predicate. So the predicate's name is father, and two values for that are the parameters are Paul and Keith. And it doesn't matter which one is, in terms of the predicate calculus or prologue, it doesn't matter which one is input and which one is output, or maybe they're both input and maybe they're both output. So this is not well defined. In Mercury, this becomes strong. And so you begin to say, well, this one is most definitely input, which means that when I call it with a value there in that position, then I expect the other ones to be filled in by the time the call finishes. So this is different from a function in that you will give multiple parameters to a function, carrying notwithstanding, and get a single value, and that may be a tuple, as the result. For a predicate, you can have more than one result, and the results are part of the normal parameter list. Just some of the parameters happen to be input and some of them happen to be output. A predicate can also have different modes. So in some cases, you might say, well, the first parameter is the input and the second parameter is the output. But it's also allowed that the first parameter is the output and the second one is the input. So you can call your predicate in its reverse mode and get what you would normally think of as the question as the answer. Then determinism. This comes in when, let's go back to the father example. I have only one father, so there's only one answer to the question, who is Paul's father? But my father has two children. So there are two answers to that question. So it depends on which order or in which parameters you have instantiated as to which mode of the predicate is being called and therefore how many answers there can be, whether there are more than one answer. And when there are more than one answer, that's when backtracking happens to bring that full circle all the way back to backtracking. Okay, I think I get a picture of this. Hopefully our listeners do too, but we'll try and dig in just a little bit more. And some of this is, I'm trying to remember and relate from William Byrd talking about Minikandron because he was talking about, I believe it was the term he used was relational algebra. And 
back to what you said as well with your first experience with SQL and you're like, hey, the query planner figures out a lot of this for me. It may be efficient. It may not be depending on the engine that's running, but Mm -hmm. there is at least some solution that it can try and determine and figure out for me. And what you also said was that it's a function, but there is no output in some sense, but it's just a bunch of parameters and those parameters can either be set up as input and or output. Just input or output. Uh, they don't have and or. Okay. Not in Mercury. I think I have seen, um, is it Ada that does that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I was thinking that, and I guess it was part of that, and this is why I wanted to dig in, was misinterpretation of if you said it was input, I didn't know if it could become output as well. If you're given Paul's father is Keith, if it may just return Paul's father is Keith because you've already supplied both and they, and that fact matches another fact kind of thing. So as you build up larger expressions of these things where they mm. fill in for each other and because I've also seen some stuff about things like data log from closure perspective where it essentially says X is here and here and here and then it fills in because all of those x's are the same kind of thing and so i didn't know if they were input and output in that format if this thing was already been found to be a a solution for this predicate via another mechanism if i'm actually asking a question that makes sense i think you've asked about two questions about two um there um and i'll try and figure out what they were So one of the tricky things is that Mercury ideally can do that, but the implementation doesn't. This was part of the original intention, and it's something that you can do in Prolog, is if you've got a term and it has values that haven't been filled in yet, then those can be filled in as a result of calling something with that term, uh, using that that term as um, as a parameter. And then there's another thing going on there, which is when you've got those like X used in multiple places within a thing and they all, um, or you just say, like, let's say you've got two free variables, X and Y. If you say X equals Y, then those variables are aliased, even though they don't have values yet. Then by setting later on, if you set X to three, Y automatically becomes three because because they were aliased. And that's something that happens in Prolog and not in Mercury. So um, so perhaps that's what you'd experienced um, or we're talking about with Mini Canran. And I think that's probably something similar. And this is why I wanted it again, because every language has its own different sets of spins on everything as you said you thought ada might have some of this kind of stuff as well so it's interesting to see what the differences are and so one of the other differences you explicitly called out early on was the strong static style typing that you get in mercury language so how Mm. does that work in something like this when you're setting up your predicates so um Each parameter of the predicate has a type. Um, The types are, um, it's very similar to uh, a Haskell or ML-like type system. So um, they're uh, discriminated union types. Um, So uh, a type can be made of one or or more constructors, um, and those constructors can have parameters. 
Um, Mercury also supports um, um, polymorphic types. So you can have a list of T and then later on uh, when you go to use that, the T can become some concrete type um, and, um, and type classes like in-house scale are also supported. Um, that's kind of um, that's kind of it. It's pretty. Um, it seems straightforward and uninteresting. So, <laughs> and part of it may just be getting a bigger picture. As this is the first time someone's ever heard of Mercury, of trying to get a picture of how that works without looking at source code. So, if we go back to the end queens problem, as you described, or sure. Sudoku, or some of these other kind of examples that become the more common things that people can think about without actually having to understand a whole bunch of complex rules, how would you set up types on something like a four Queens problem or a Sudoku where you have the squares and different columns and rows and numbers or the four Queens problem where you have this queen and she can attack or capture based off a row column or diagonal. Mm. The Queens problem I think is really simple um, because it's um, because you know, because um, the way the problem works out is that because you could only have one queen per column, then the first queen that you see in the result is already, you can already assume it's in, in the first column and the second one in the second column and so on. So you only need to represent an integer for each queen and the result would be a list of integers. Um, and you'd, um, in, in order to work out whether they can attack queens that have already been placed in the problem, you'd see if their integers are the same and do some more, um, uh, do a little bit of arithmetic to work out whether they can, um, be attacked by queens in the diagonals. And so the queen would be something like a tuple of integers then, or it would just be a single integer that represents something like the row it's on instead of the column. Yeah, just the row. To create types for a slightly, uh, for a different problem, let's say you've got a card deck of playing cards. Each card has a suit and a number or king, queen or jack. And so you will have your playing card type will have a data constructor called card or normal card or something. And that would have two values, the suit, which itself is a type, and the number of the card. And that can either be an integer where you give special numbers for the king, queen, and so on, or you can write out a new type for that as well. So your suit type would just be hearts, diamonds, clubs, and spades. And you could also add a second data constructor to the card type to represent the joker. Okay, I think that starts to make a little bit more sense now in something that becomes a more complex domain than just something like Sudoku or the N-Queens problem, which are both great examples to show the power of this stuff in the same way that you can show someone the power of SQL as attempt of, look, if you actually want to understand what's doing SQL versus just going through some sort of query mapper and say, hey, look, we set these up, we set these constraints up, where this is this, we join on this other table... Assuming these things are there and this thing's in a where clause, there's a where clause that's in this range. And so actually having some of those harder examples to picture that are more complex starts to give off some of the types than just trying to think about 
what does types mean for a four queen problem if you're just demonstrating it. So I think that's helpful as well. Yeah, it's a common example and it probably appears in say your homework if you're learning Mercury or or a, a, a typed language. This is often in the coursework. So I've just given you an answer for your exam. And so you get into Mercury. Part of what attracts you to this is the ability to handle parallelism out of the box or at least expressiveness and have Mercury take care of that for you. What does that look like and how does that research with Mercury work? And because that seems to be one of the hotspots for functional programming languages in general is this allure of we've got four core, we got eight core, 10, 12, 16, 32 core machines now that are floating out there. And we want to be able to have things that are isolated because of no shared state with functional programming. How does Mercury take advantage of that? And what is some of that stuff that you're looking at and that appeal for that work that you're working on. Yeah. So yeah, that is definitely what attracted me, that there's no shared state. So it's obvious that things should at least be easy to parallelize. So I looked at this and spoke to my supervisor and he said, yeah, but that's already been done. We know that it's easy to parallelize in terms of safety. What we don't know and, and often get wrong is where it's best to introduce parallelism for performance reasons. Another way to say it is that it's easy to introduce parallelism everywhere, all over your program. But if you do that, you'll end up with far too many parallel tasks or threads and the overheads of parallel execution will outweigh any benefit that you would have gotten from parallel evaluation. So my research, and it builds on research of others, is to find the best way to automatically parallelize a uh, program. So what it does is using profiler data, so you run the program with the profiler, then run the analysis tool over the, over the data that the profiler gives you, and it looks for computations that are expensive enough, close enough together, that it can run in parallel with one another. It can either pick out, obviously it needs more than one to run it in parallel with something, but it can look at two or three or four or as many um, parallel tasks as it wants within one area. So is this something that goes through in the goal is, you say automatic, is this something that is completely without hypids and because you analyze it, there needs to be some kind of smaller subset of training on this before you run the real program or what does the vision look like that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so either, either yeah, you have a small subset of the data that you run the program on first to train it, as you said. But sometimes you run it on the full data or an example of the full data before you parallelize it, build the final build and ship it to your customers who might run it thousands of times each. So even if you run it on a full set of data, it can still be worthwhile because during its lifetime with your customers or whatever, hopefully it will be used heaps. Okay, that makes sense as far as this isn't one of those necessarily big data problems where you're constructing a one-off query and running it and trying to get it to solve, but you may be having this thing come in and analyze a daily report kind of thing where here's today's data, let's see what we're solving against now, and then here's a new set of data that's similar but for a different day or just, again, something similar as an example, not necessarily that that's a good one, but where the data is recurring and close enough that the profiling makes sense. It's, and this kind of makes sense from my point of view, because I understand what it's like 
how it's using that data, it's whether the data is the same shape. Let's say the data has two major parts. If one is always bigger than the other one, then that's kind of of the same shape. But if one day the second term is a lot bigger than the first one, then that's of a different shape. And if it parallelizes the processing of the first one, but not the second one, then suddenly the parallelization isn't as good. But still the program works. That makes sense. Where it's not necessarily about the data you feed it, but the relative dimensions and inputs of the data then. Yeah. Especially when that data has a direct relationship with the call tree of the program. And again, probably another bad metaphor, but in the same way that if you're loading up data into a database and you're running SQL against it and you're letting the query analyzer determine what needs to run and you build indexes on a row that has a hundred table, like on two tables that have a hundred rows each versus two tables that have rows of a million records each that the indexes that may or may not be needed for the small table would depend on the size of the columns in the large table and what things are set up as unique and indexable based off the queries that are going to be run. Yeah, exactly. You might have created your indexes based upon a certain scenario that you've seen, and they'll mostly be good, but might not always. The reason we use profiler feedback is because you can't tell from a static analysis of the program which parts of it will run for longer, because a lot of that has depends upon the data. And you can guess, but it's always better to use representative data. And that makes sense. And one of the other, before we talked about this, one of the other ventures that I had that might have been the parallelization was essentially, if I've got 32 cores and I'm trying to solve the M-Queens problem, do I start from scratch 32 times with just a different starting value for the first queen and let it run and backtrack and whoever gets done solving it first is the answer I take versus trying to, as you said, what you're actually doing is finding those small parts of the program that can be made parallel and be taken advantage of versus just resolving the problem from a bunch of different starting points and hoping that one solution comes to fruition faster and then throwing out the rest and saying abort, abort, abort. Yeah, that is definitely the best way to do it. So what you've created there, you've invented what's called or parallelism. So when a logic language has to make a decision about which value, like I said, there's a predicate can have more than one value. And when that happens, it's via a thing called disjunction or non-determinism. So you end up having... If you imagine your search space as a as a tree of decisions, where there's a branch in this decision tree is when you've got something or something else, and you're creating parallelism between two branches in the search space. This was done with several prologues. They attempted to exploit all parallelism. And for a problem like Enqueens, this is very effective. One of the challenges, is, though, is that many programs in the real world don't actually use non-determinism they tend to use only deterministic code. So adding support for parallelism there is simply a burden to the implementation and may not help real programs. So what we did, and what also, again, some many other prologues did, was work on and parallelism. So parallelism between things along a branch in the decision tree. But they have to be things that either aren't very related, like they're independent, 
thinking of examples when you're not allowed to actually draw code for the audience is very tricky. Let's say you have to get a couple of bits of information before you process them, So, but actually retrieving the information is independent. Then you can run that kind of a thing in parallel. Mercury goes a little bit further and also supports dependent parallelism, so things can depend on one another to some degree, not completely, and still run in parallel. The more dependent they are on one another, the less they can run in parallel. I think that starts to give a better picture of what this parallelism means. And as you started throwing around some other terms about the non-determinism and the like, it reminded me of the word I was going blank on earlier on when I was asking and kind of comparing the mini canon to prologue was the concept of cuts in prologue, Uh. where you can get to a certain point and do a cut. Is that something that is there with the strong typing and things that are in Mercury, or is that something that is not there in Mercury compared to Prologue? It's something that we've deliberately designed out of the language. Okay, so that kind of falls along the line with the mini and stuff where they were trying to go as far as they can and keep it as pure as they can by removing cuts from there as well. So because a cut is... It like an effect, it changes something that's not really, it's not a variable or value in the program. So they call it extra logical or illogical because it, it's not part of the, the logic, the way you've expressed it in the program. It's, it's extra to that. And so it's seen as something that um, if you can find sometimes the necessary in prologue in order to get efficient execution, but they're really nasty because they are basically a side effect. So in Mercury, via having strong modes and if statements, we've avoided having cuts at all. And that circles back around to that original question and helps clarify the question that I was actually trying to ask. So I think that helps clarify, at least in my head, a better picture of some of the differences between Mercury and Prologue. And so as part of the prep for this show, you sent me some other things that Mercury is involved with. And so one of the other things that sounded interesting that before we get to the end is you mentioned declarative debugging. And so do you want to kind of give a rundown of what that means in general and how that relates to what people can take advantage of in Mercury specifically? This is something that a colleague of mine worked on. So a colleague of mine worked on declarative debugging. And it's essentially a way that when you get to a point while you're stepping through your program where the answer or the the output of a predicate call or function call in a functional language doesn't make sense for the inputs that it's been given. So the output is wrong, but the input is correct. Then invoking the declarative debugger starts a search through that part of the program to look at all its callees work out if any of those have the wrong answer for the correct input. So the declarative debugger asks you, so I called this thing, it got this answer for this input, and then it says, is this correct? And you say yes and no. And by answering yes and no, it will narrow down and work through the search space of your program to help you track down a bug. Okay, I'm processing that. I think I might have a picture of it. It's continuing the lines of bad metaphors that almost sound similar to the concept of a git bisect as you're going through the git tree and determining 
things and you're saying, is this run this thing, determine if it's right or wrong. It sounds like it's kind of going doing something roughly similar in your prologue tree of here's all the things and forks that can happen in your decision tree at any certain point. Does this make sense? Yes or no. And then I can traverse up the tree further or down the tree and navigate my way to the tree to figure out where some of those things might be coming in just based off what's been evaluated so far. Yeah. With that analogy, is it correct that a Git bisect will work along one, like just a linear part of the history? I think that's what I've seen is that at least the Git bisect is a linear, you give it a starting point and a ending point and it does a linear, essentially divide and conquer, picks a midway point and says, is this good or not? And then we'll either go forward in history from that point or backwards in history, or you've wound up finding it. But as this seems to be declarative more so, you can potentially have multiple branches, right? Yeah, so it's any branch in the tree is just for your call graph, where a predicate has more than one callee. It will fan out in the search space there and try and find the right node within the call tree where the array is. One of the challenges is, like you mentioned with Git Bisect, that it starts in the middle somewhere and tries to narrow it down with a binary search. Where um, declarative debugging, where the research is currently at, is trying to find what question to ask the developer next. Because the real cost of finding, I mean, you might think that asking the fewest, the smallest number of questions is best, like in order to create a good search strategy to find the bug. That can be good, but some of the things that you want to optimize for is keeping things in the developer's mind. So if they're looking at code from one module, if you can ask a question from the same module or even nearby in the code, then there's a good chance that it will be easier for the developer to answer whether or not that's valid or not. That makes sense. And I didn't expect it to be necessarily some kind of graph and tree traversal as you would picture a graph and tree where you're, again where you're essentially running that through something like Mercury itself, and it's doing its own thing with having to deal with backtracking and whatnot, but just trying to figure out more of, it's taking these various decision points that have played in, and then just asking you and helping you to narrow down that scope that says, lop off a branch from this tree or this tree or this tree based off the fact that I know this to be good. Yeah, exactly. So uh, a known good sub-branch can just, doesn't need to be explored. So we're getting close to the end of our time. Is there anything that you think is worth mentioning that we haven't mentioned already about Mercury, why people should check it out and what makes it interesting? I suppose there's a few other things. Mercury compiles to C code. There's a couple of different C backends depending upon your needs. And different backends have different capabilities and it's a little bit hairy in choosing the right one. But a lot of people are attracted to Mercury because it also has Java, C-sharp, and Erlang backends. So the Erlang one is a little bit underdeveloped, but the other ones are pretty good. So if you're interacting, or if you need to interact with some Java or C-sharp code, then Mercury is still a possibility for you. So that sounds interesting and useful to know for anybody checking it out, is that it is the fact that the multiple backends with, seems to have a plugin architecture for that. I wouldn't go as far as plug-in architecture. <laughs> We've just developed multiple backends. Okay. 
And I wasn't sure if it was a full plugin architecture or just the multiple backends where someone's like, oh, okay, here's a way to participate as well is to go potentially even write another backend for, say, Haskell or whatever someone else might be interested if that is a feasibility. Every so often somebody asks about JavaScript. LLVM would be a good one. If somebody wants to contribute an LLVM backend, we'd be right behind that. So it compiles down to a couple of different backends at this point. Is there anything else that's worth mentioning to put on people's radar so they can go check out and find out more and just increase that tease of why Mercury? I suppose there's not a lot else. One of the things that might be a bit different, and Mercury is one of the few languages I know that satisfies these particular things, is that if you're looking for a strongly typed pure language, then a lot of people will go to Haskell. But if you want also want it to use eager evaluation, then I think Mercury might be the only thing. Whereas in some sense, it's similar to OCaml because OCaml is strongly typed in eager, but it's not pure, but we've got all three. So, And where can people find out more about Mercury and what are some good resources or where can people find good resources to get more familiar with Mercury and up and running if they decide they want to experiment it? with it on their own sure well there's the website is mercurylang.org i'm sure proctor will put that in the show notes i will respond to people on twitter with either the mercury lang the at mercury lang twitter account or my own twitter account uh, at paul underscore bone on the website there's a page with a few resources that people have created including things like mercury entries on rosetta code and things like that and one of the best places to ask questions is the mailing lists, the user's mailing list. We're a bit old school, so in that most things tend to happen by email. But there's also an IRC channel with a few people in it. And that's Mercury Lang on uh, the Freenode network. And then you mentioned there are some courses at the university where Mercury Lang is being taught. Are any of those notes or guides from there or resources that are used in that course available to people who might be looking or are they going to have to go fly down to Melbourne and sign up for the course to find out more? I'm afraid it's worse than that. I don't know if it's currently taught at Melbourne Uni. It was taught as part of, uh, I think it was a third or fourth year subject for logic programming. And then for a little while, it was taught as a small part of the declarative programming course. So I'm not sure what the state of either of those is now. But the lecture notes aren't freely available, I'm afraid. There is the Mercury tutorial is on the website. This is a draft of a textbook that nobody's currently working on. So there are incomplete sections and there are a few things that are out of date. But it's probably one of the better resources for um, a more gentle introduction to Mercury. But it sounds like in that case, if you're interested and you pick this up, there are plenty of opportunities to help participate and be active in the community and help drive forward some of those learning resources to help build the community as well. If this is something that you play with, you like, and you're interested in. Sure. And the best way the best way to really, I mean, we could use some more people in the community and one of the best ways to get involved is on the mailing lists. I suppose one of the best ways to learn Mercury at the moment is to try out some small example programs. So set yourself some problems, maybe something from Project Euler, 
And if you're struggling, just ask for help and post your code and somebody around will hopefully see where they can offer some help. And as the last question before we get to where people can find you and follow along with you is, do you have any call to action for the audience? If you're interested in Mercury, if this has been curious for you, then come and uh, talk to us. I'm happy to talk to people on Twitter and so on. If there's something in particular that you'd like to use Mercury for, I'd also be happy to talk with you about that. That sounds great. And then where can people find you and follow along with you? You mentioned your Twitter account. We'll get that in the show notes. We'll get all the Mercury links. But where's the best place for people to find out and just keep up to date with some of the stuff you're going on? Because I saw you recently had a presentation, which is linked to on the Mercury homepage. But where can people find out about you? I don't currently have a homepage. I'm considering setting one up and actually starting blogging. So once that's happening, I'll mention it on Twitter. And if you want to ping me whenever that happens, I can go back and always get it updated in the show notes after the fact, too, for anybody who finds this episode in the future. Check it out. Maybe it's there at this point. Yep, I'd be happy to. And we'll get all those links that you mentioned added to the show notes. And that way people can go follow along and find out more as they listen to this episode and get back to a place where they can go check it out if they're listening in their car or on a run or doing dishes or little stuff that they're doing as they listen to this. So we'll get everything included in the show notes. And then if there's anything else we've left out, we'll get those added too. Thank you, Proctor. I'd like you to give a giant thank you to David Pelcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Paul, for taking your time to join me today. I know we had some scheduling issues on my end with some little kid issues. And thanks for getting time and coordinating across, I think, 14 time zones and two hemispheres. Or maybe even all four hemispheres at this point. But uh, thanks for taking the time to join me. And it was a pleasure talking with you. No worries. It was great. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery. That can be parallel, parallel, bleh. that can be parallelized <laughs> and I cannot pronounce that today. No, it took me a lot of practice. <laughs>